Good morning, everybody. All right, everybody have their Bibles. All right, we got the swords. Let's open up to Mark chapter one. Not that we'll be reading out of there today. <laughs> I think I'm kidding. Mark chapter one. If you put your finger there in Mark and, and you look kind of to the left of Mark, you notice there's a big section of Scripture, right? What happened there? What was that story about? Well, I think it's important before we jump into the book of Mark, the study of the book of Mark, that we kind of have a little bit of historical background. And because I'm kind of new here, what I would like to do is do a brief Old Testament survey just to kind of bring us all up to par. And then... I just want to give a couple historical, uh, I think some very major historical things that happened that helped shape the times and the culture of Jesus' day. If you think about it, it's 2,000 years ago. No cell phones, no communication across town. How did you get there? Or, you know, if you're lucky, you got on a donkey or something. You know? It was very inconvenient, rough times. Languages, all these cultures shoved into one little place. All these different religions in one place, all fighting for their piece of the pie. Romans conquering the land. All this stuff is going on. Well, how did it get there? We're going to go ahead and talk about that for just a second, but you can go ahead and close your Bibles for the moment. So I just wanted to let you know, there's, there's a little bit going on beforehand. Yeah, that's, we're going to shoot our projector here pretty soon. But you, as we're going through this, I really recommend that you take notes. Uh, let's be students of the Word of God. Let's write these things down. Let's get them in our hearts and our minds uh, as we begin to study the, uh, the book of Mark, especially next week. But uh, as we begin... I just wanted to talk about the Bible in general, um, the Old Testament, so to speak. The Bible has a main theme throughout the whole thing. What, what do you think the main theme is of, of, the, of the scriptures? Anybody? This is kind of, a, this is subjective. I just wanted to bring this up. Yes. Do what God tells you to do and things will be better. You know what? He actually kind of hit it on the head. We're gonna, I'm going to keep on bringing it up. Anybody else? What was the Bible, was the main theme of the Bible? God's love. What was that other one? Leading us to Jesus. Anyone else? Reconciliation. True. Christianese word for God buying back something that was his. He's reconciled. He paid for something that was his and took it back. Anyone else? God with us. God becoming with us. These are all, I would say, themes in the Bible. My personal opinion is that the theme of the entire scriptures is the kingdom of God. That is my personal take on it. And that's kind of how I look at scriptures from Genesis all the way to the end. And even when you think about the word, you know, the kingdom of God, what is that? In my mind, in my heart, the way I understand it, it's, the kingdom of God is the way that life would be lived if God were, if God's will were 
exerted on every single situation. The kingdom of God. What would that look like? It would look like Him. It would look like His heart in every situation. It would be His rule, His authority, His rules, His justice. The kingdom of God. It's a very important theme throughout all scripture, uh, scripture, but creation under the rule of God in every way imaginable is an easy way of me saying it. But the, the scriptures show us how God interacts with man to bring about his will and to the reestablishment of his kingdom on earth. Because obviously, we're, as we just learned, is his will going on in earth? No, there's a war going on. And we're to pray, Father, we want your will to happen right here as it is in heaven. Bring your will about. Man, through his sins, gave over his right to this world, and Satan rules it and reigns right now. And on the cross, Jesus brought back his title deed. And guess what? He's coming back to take it back. But until that time, we're here on the earth to fulfill and to push the, the will of God upon this evil place that's fallen. That's what the scriptures teach. Go. Make disciples, Jesus said. Remember that? Teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. What did Jesus command them about? The kingdom of God. Every time he spoke to them, when he opened up the parables, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. And he would speak all these different parables about the kingdom of God because he wanted people to understand what real life was about. It's almost as if we're living in a fantasy world, so to speak. So we think that breathing in and out is life. When actually, what does the Bible say about life? That knowing Him is life. John 17.3 or 3.7, I can't remember, backwards. Knowing the one true God, that's eternal life. That when our heart stops beating, where do we go? Do we continue on living before our Father? Or do we go to a place of destruction and torment? It's pretty crazy stuff. The kingdom of God is before us. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's upon you. And it's not only a physical reign that will happen one day, but it's the reign in our hearts. Do we let God in our hearts rule and reign? There's a scripture that I wanted to have up that says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. How many of you go, ugh, <laughs> myself included, this week, ugh, failure, you know? But we're going to grow in grace. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. How many of you claim to live in him? I do. Does my life reflect that? No, it doesn't. Lord Jesus, help me. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Oh, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I would live according to your kingdom and not my kingdom. The war that's going on in each of our hearts and our lives. Man's way versus God's way. And I just see throughout all of Scripture 
the Lord just pleading with us and, and graciously introducing us to his kingdom, his character, his love, his power, all of his attributes, and all these other theological terms that fall short of describing who he is. And that king that spoke the world into existence is here by faith in the us right now. And this place is holy. Where two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus said, there I am also. All things were put together were spoken by him and for him. And he's in this room right now, although we can't see him. That's reality. That's life. And one day when we breathe our last, we're going to be very present in that kingdom. But by faith, we're in that kingdom right now. So, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Well, what does that look like? How do we learn to walk like Jesus? Exactly. The source. God's given us his word to us by God's amazing intervention in human history. He's given us his message to us through ordinary men penned over thousands of years. We're going to learn a little about this in just a second. Speaking to us about how to live according to his will, how to live like our Father. You know, when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what happens to our hearts? We become born again. We become new creations. But we're no longer of this kingdom. We're of His kingdom. Oh, what manner of love that the Father lavished upon us that we could become children of the Most High God. He loves you. He absolutely adores you. This person spoke the heavens into existence. Now, I think about that psalm. Psalm 8, you know, when I think about the heavens, the moon, the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why are you mindful of me? And it's just this amazing love that he has for us that captivates our hearts. Don't you know who I am? Is my question to him. And I'm like a caged animal in this, in this cage, and he comes by and I snap at him. That's my nature. But he reaches in and he loves me. He loves you. And he wants to deal with that sin nature that's in each one of us. He knows we're fallen. So he sent his only son. He died on the cross to take away that person that we can't get away from. That we can become his kids. And by faith, we nail it to the cross every day. We need to learn how to walk as Jesus walked. Amen? So that's what we're about, going through Mark. We're, we want to reflect God and his kingdom properly. I want to reflect that in my life. And I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot to change in my life. What about you? Yeah. And guess what? We're going to fall. We're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have things about us that don't change for a while. But we're dedicated to loving one another, aren't we? And to pairing with one another's weaknesses. And to building each other up and speaking the truth in love. Amen? The book of Mark. And the reason why I chose Mark, and, and I think we actually kind of just talked about it, it's the American gospel. It's quick, it's fast, it's the shortest of all the gospels. It just gives you that one-two punch. I think that's what we need. It's pretty hard-hitting all the way around. He doesn't, you know, Jesus is not very politically correct. So we're just going to have fun and say, wow, this is what you're saying to us, this is what you're saying to our culture. Amazing. But 
let's, let's, let's spend a little time just talking about the Bible, the background right now. So next slide, actually two slides. So the Bible, I know this is uh, pretty much a uh, review for a lot of you, but uh, the English Bible consists of 66 books and is divided into two major sections, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament has 39 books, the New Testament has 27 books. And by the way, your Bible is not in chronological order. Did you ever, that's kind of frustrating, isn't it? You're reading along going, what the, where, where am I, you know? <laughs> well, actually, you know, the, uh, there are Bibles out there that actually put it in chronological order. It's pretty neat. And there's also, uh, there's Bibles out there just for the New Testament. They take all four Gospels and slam them into one and put them in chronological order. That's pretty neat. I might tell the same story twice from a different angle. But it helps you, just to let you know, the Jewish mind isn't linear. They don't, they don't think left to right. They don't think from this day to that day. It's more of a circular type of thing. When I was in, even in Asia, in Asian culture, there's a bunch of half-built buildings everywhere. And I'm going, what is wrong with you people? You know, I'm an American projecting my views upon you going, why haven't you finished this building? Don't you understand the importance of task? And I walk up to them, and they stop everything they're doing, and they sit down, and they break out their best food, and they give it to me, and they can talk for as long as we want. Because they value your relationship or task. Now you tell me which one's more biblical. But get her done, you know what I mean? Come on now. That just drives me crazy. So when you're writing the Bible, it's not necessarily from left to right, you know, this way. It's, it's, it's jumbled up, and it's their mindset, and I can't get it, but there it is. So keep it in mind. Um, the Bible is written by 40 authors on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Hebrew and Aramaic, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament. And it was written over a period of 1,500 years. So that's, uh, next slide, 1,500 years. Uh, so from the time of Moses, you see that. Um, uh, from the time about Adam to uh, the close of the Old Testament, it's about 4,000 B.C. to 425 B.C. It's about 3,500 years worth of history that it's recording. Um, the English Bible is arranged according to types of literature genre. And we kind of thank the Lord for iTunes. Because now I think a whole generation understands the word genre. Uh, yeah, it's great. The Bible has different types of literature. And guys, this is where we get really, really messed up. When we go and we start going to a poem and we start taking it as if it were written as a law, it wasn't. It was written as a poem. Or if we start going to, you know, I mean, when. For example, if you're reading Psalms and says, "Oh, he's like, you know, he's like a, you know, like a, you know, mother hen just wanting to gather his sticks together," and someone walks away going, "God's a bird," it's like, "No, he's not a bird. He's saying he's like a bird." It's it's a genre of literature. I think we all know this type of stuff. But it, it, how come it is when we come to the Bible, we get all screwed, but we read other classics, classics Homer, Homer's Odyssey, for example, we just read it for face value. So I think it's important as we come across different types of scripture. That we read it for face value, for what it is. And as you begin to study the word, you begin to understand what type of literature it is and what he's speaking. And that will really help you get the, the heart of what is being said. So there's four basic types. There's the law, 
There's history, there's poetry, and there's prophecy. And so each of these genres of literature record in different ways the dialogue between God and man. Some of us like to be related to differently, don't we? Some of us are very analytical. We want the law. Give us the bottom line. I want to understand it in bullet points. You know? Some of us are like, I don't feel that, you know? I just need to get me in the poem, you know? And there you go. God gives you a poem. How much I love you, and you need to repent, and all that stuff, you know? And come and be with me, and I'm a bird, like, out of hands, and all that stuff. You know what I mean? There's different types of genres. The great lengths that God goes to to communicate to us. He just keeps going and going and going. He loves his people from Israel all the way down to us. So four different types of, of literature. Um, the law is basically the first five books of, of, the, of the Old Testament. Yeah, it's called the Pentateuch five. And um, go next one. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis means the beginning. Go back. Uh, Exodus, exiting their captivity, right, the people of Israel. Genesis basically tells the story of creation and the beginning of the Jewish people. Then Exodus is how they were in captivity in, in Egypt, and they were brought out by Moses. Leviticus, they started having the priesthood, and so those are all the laws. Numbers, they started counting all the people, and uh, that's a great book. Um, there are 500 and so-and-so begot. And Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law. When they were about to go in the land, they told them again, hey, remember, the first time around, this was what we told Jesus, I'm telling you it again. And it recalls a different aspect of it. So. Uh, the next books are the history. And this is the history of Israel. This records uh, Israel's spiritual growth and decline. Joshua, he took over for Moses. He came to the land, started knocking down cities and they came out and they, they divided the land into, up to everybody, you know, all the different tribes you had there. And then, unfortunately, uh, the judge, the, they did not take the land and judges came about. And the first 300 years, it judges is the first 300 years in the land. And guess what the main reoccurring theme is that they did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? They did what was right in their own eyes. So God would keep on having to raise up these judges who weren't all the classiest people, like Samson, you know, who was into his eyes kept wandering, but he would stand up and he would look and he would do amazing things for God. And, and all of a sudden there was this remnant. People's hearts would turn back to the Lord just a little group at a time. And then things would get good. They'd fall away and do what was right in their own eyes. And then God would go after him again and bring him back. Go after him again and bring him back. It's just this horrible repetition that we get to see that happens in our own lives. You ever notice that? Oh, Lord, help me. I'm in the judges. Then there's Ruth, which is looking at the line of David uh, leading to the Messiah. The next texts deal with the kingdom era. First Samuel bridges the time between the judges and the prophets. Second Samuel, we want a king. We want a king. Give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. Okay, here he is. His name is Saul. He's tall, he's handsome, he's good-looking, great politician, heart far away from God. And then we see the story of the king that they anointed finally, the one that God wanted to choose. His name was David. He was the least, the youngest of eight kids. He was a shepherd guy out in the field, but he was full of the Holy Spirit. He loved the Lord. He messed up a lot in his life. His heart was after God, and God loved him. It's a beautiful story. 
It's the story of God's grace. So, First uh, Kings, Second Kings, and these are all bad stories about how wonderful the kings were. All these kings that you wanted, boy, boy, the messes they got these people into. First Kings, Second Kings, and First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. These kind of line up together. All these books. The last three, three deal with the nation going back into the land. They got kicked out of the land. It's all about the land for Israel, a place that God promised for them. They were promised. They went water for 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't believe that God was giving them land. They got kicked out. And they finally went in and took it. But they decided, you know what, I'm just happy with where I am. I'm not going to go and take the rest of the land. Does that sound like our spiritual walk with the Lord sometimes? I'm just satisfied with being here on Sunday. I don't want to do anything else for God's kingdom. Here I am. Kayla was talking about it last week. And I was preaching something. We want to take the land. We want to go and, and do what the Lord has for us in our lives. Every single day we live. But they stood where they are. So the Lord let their enemies come in and start hugging them. Oh, joy. The Philistines came in. Wonderful time. But... Anyways, they got back into the land after 70 years of captivity. And that's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And then there's poetry. It's a presentation of worship of the Lord and individual faith. We have the story of Job. That was during the time of Abraham. Again, this isn't chronological. Then we have Psalms, the time of David mostly. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. But you'll find in Psalms, they'll, they'll take song, the Song of, uh, of Moses or someone like that, and they'll put it in there. So uh, a lot of wonderful songs that we have today are from uh, the Psalms. And from the era, from 800 uh, B.C. to 425 B.C. is the, the era of the prophets. The Lord's revelation of blessings and judgments and promises. The prophets, when we get to those Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, those were all guys saying, hey Israel, come back to God. You're going after foreign gods. You're going to get kicked out of the land. What did they do? They killed them. We don't like to hear bad news about how we are, do we? No, we like your friendly things. Whatever ministers to me and happiness and you're just so good. And, and that's part of it, right? The Lord loves you. But the other message is, hey, he loves you enough to change us, right? He's working on us. Repent. And so that's part of the message, which you're going to get next week. The first thing that Jesus says on the scene, what does he say? Hi, everybody. How you doing? I'm going to say, he says, no, repent. Oh, man. <laughs> I was expecting something different. Anyways, we'll get there next week. But the Lord's revelation, so major prophets. The difference between major prophets and minor prophets is the major prophets are long-winded, the minor prophets aren't. <laughs> so... It, and it closes with Malachi. And that was around 400 years before the time of Christ. 400 years of time, behind the time of Christ. Now listen up. This is very important, everybody. As we're kind of going over this history review of the Old Testament. God has chosen a person, Abraham. And through him, he brought a nation together that through them, the promised Messiah would come to redeem the world. That's the scarlet thread that goes all through Scripture. So salvation, redemption, is a reconciliation. That is a theme in Scripture. And we need to keep that in mind. It's amazing when you're reading through Genesis. You're reading this, this, this story about these group of brothers, and all of a sudden it jumps to this one brother, and you go, why are you talking about this brother? It has nothing to do with anything. It really doesn't. 
It's the story of Judah and about how he cheated on so-and-so and all of a sudden. And the reason why they went to that story and they didn't know about it back then is because the reason why he cheated on so-and-so is because that's Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great, you know, grandma or someone that did that. These authors didn't know that when they were writing. I was the Holy Spirit, you know, and wanted to connect the dots all the way through. So you see the scarlet thread that's going through Scripture. It's amazing. Open the crayon. Let's see that happen. I don't think so. We have amazing book that is supernatural. God speaks the end from the beginning, so you know that it's not just a book. It's his word to us. We should pay attention to it. Grab on it. Jesus says, you know what? Your word is more than bread. I want it more than bread. And my food is to do the will of God, Jesus said over and over. How we should be feasting on it, grabbing it, pulling it apart, putting it in our lives and changing. It's very important for us to do and begin to do. So, the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of what is called the intertestamental period. This 400 year gap of silence, biblical silence, door shuts. And then, quiet, no more scriptures for 400 years. That's a long time. That's longer than we've been a nation. Right? That's a long time not to hear from God. Imagine what kind of stuff would go on between that. That's a lot of stuff. But, there was an anticipation of the Messiah. It's very important to view how the Jewish people in that nation viewed the Messiah. They viewed him as a political savior. When they read scriptures, they go, they looked for a political savior because they were in a political predicament. They did not read the scriptures that spoke of him as a suffering savior. As they mostly, and if you talk to them today, they project that onto the nation of Israel as the suffering savior. No, it's the person of Christ. They viewed him as a physical deliverer like Moses was in Egypt. Remember that scripture? Oh, we're going to send a prophet like Moses. He's actually going to physically deliver you. They're looking for the physical. See, the Old Testament was the physical example of the spiritual truth. We learned that in Hebrews, and that's for some of you to go ahead and do for homework, okay? Read Hebrews. But like Moses was in Egypt, that's what they're looking for. Save us from the Romans, they were crying out when it was Jesus' time. They thought his kingdom would be physically established. We saw that with the disciples. Remember that? They thought, he's going to come in, he's going to take them out. And what's going to happen? We're going to reign the rule. So who's going to be the greatest? They're talking about now. His disciples. They're thinking like David's kingdom, like Solomon's kingdom. Returning their status to the former glory. There's just been this decay that had happened over this 400 years. No, that wasn't the plan. Ultimately, it was the act of humility and love that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he condescended and became a human and lived among us. God is human flesh, as you pointed out. Emmanuel, God with us, another theme of the Bible. And he came to do the Father's will. And that will was to be the suffering servant. The Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. Chosen for what? To save all who would believe in him by faith. That's what he came to do. To be the sacrifice for sin. The bulls and the goats of the Old Testament were a picture of the lamb who was to come. All those sacrifices were pointing to him. This is not what the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for. 
And I have to ask ourselves, you know, are we looking for material deliverance? You know, every single day, are we looking for physical, I mean, spiritual revival in our hearts? God, as we already went through in prayer, God cares about our, our, our physical needs. But He's so concerned about our character. He's so concerned about us being children of the living God and reflecting that. And so our prayer lives, our checkbooks, our physical life should be lined up with that, don't you think? So we're going to grow together as we do this. But very important, during this 400 years, God was preparing the way for Jesus, this Messiah, to come to these people and to save them with a message. But I believe two very important historical events had to happen. Not necessarily... I think God works through human history in spite of human history. If you, if, let me just throw that out there. And I think the very first thing was that Alexander the Great came during that time and he conquered the known world. And so, <clears throat> we flip to the next... Let's go back, actually. Yeah, Alexander the Great. He lived from 356 to 323 B.C., so about 400 years before Christ, right? Alexander conquered the known world by the time he was 32. He was 20 when he started. It took him 12 years. Legend says that he wept and there was nothing else to conquer. Talk about an overachiever. <laughs> then he died in Babylon of an unhealed wound or overindulgence at age 33. That was snuffed out. Went and conquered the whole known world, just mowed over it. And when he died, his massive empire was divided into four parts. One, but for each of his generals. Believe it or not, the Bible talks about Alexander the Great 250 years before he was born. This is another amazing prophecy. Daniel, I'm going to read this whole section of scripture. You can just kind of get a taste of what God was, was planning before it happened. And he let his people know what would happen before it happened. Daniel 8, 1 through 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I love reading about all the horns in the Bible. It gets me crazy. Just listen to this. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him. No one could rescue from uh, could, could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat appeared with prominent horns between his eyes and came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and he charged at him with great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram, shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and no one could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. So interesting. And now... I love it when we try to interpret the Bible on ourselves. Let's just let the Bible do its own job. Verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching over the vision, 
and trying to understand it. Therefore, I'm sorry, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from Uli calling Gabriel. Uh, <clears throat> Tell this man the meaning of the vision. Gabriel, obviously the archangel. And as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. When he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep, my face to the ground, and he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of the, Media, of the Medes and Persians. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and a large horn between his, uh, his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. Obviously, he's talking about Alexander the Great, 250 years before he was on the face of the earth. That's, your, that's the word of God. That's amazing. And he goes on to talk about the rest of history. So if you're interested in finding out how things, he talks about these different animals and how they relate to different cities, the Romans, and how they, have, they break off and... All this amazing stuff, and it's pretty easy to understand once you read into it. But Alexander the Goat took Persia, the ram, by storm and conquered the world without even touching the ground. So fast! The scriptures even describe how he did it. Just uh, super ram. And, you know, I don't know what's going on. He died at the height of his power, and his kingdom was divided among his four generals. Four horns that went up to the winds of heaven, right? As a result of Alexander's conquest, one very important thing happened. So prepare the way for Jesus. The Hellenization of the world. The spread of the Greek culture and life and the language. Everybody spoke Greek. So that's uh, anyways, all the yellow lines that you can't see, that's where he went and killed everything. Let's go to the next one. That was his kingdom, what he conquered. Pretty good for twelve years and his you know, 20, 30-year-old guy. And he got tired and he died, I think, in, in uh, Babylon. Interesting place to die, especially from a biblical standpoint. So the spread of the Greek culture, states were set up, trading routes were established. In order to trade, you had to speak the language, Greek. Almost the whole world knew Greek by the time Jesus came on the scene. If you want to spread a message, it helps everybody can understand it. We're going to close with this. The second important thing that happened during the intertestamental period that prepared the way for Jesus from a historical aspect and helped spread his message came by way of the Romans. The Greeks established a universal language. Next, next slide there. The Romans built the roads. Very important. All roads lead to Rome. You heard that, right? Rome is famous for their system of ro roads. 53,000 miles of roads to connect every part of their empire. The roads were mostly built by the army and were done by hand. The system of roads connected together every province in the empire. That's how you can say all roads, all roads lead to Rome. One could start traveling on one corner and get to the other corner. I know part. So the big picture, listen up everybody. If you had a message that was so important that you wanted to spread to the whole world rapidly, what factors might be important? Number one. Well, how about the beginning where the three major continents would connect? Can I have the next one? That's the 1511 map of the, of the Germans. That's Tinner City right there. 
Jerusalem. South is Africa, Asia, Europe. If you notice, the Middle East, right there where Israel is, where three continents connect. Wouldn't you want to start your message there? Very important. God has things planned out. It's pretty interesting. Secondly, how about having the roads that allow for fast transportation between all these places? High bandwidth, you know? And lastly, how about a common language? It's amazing how God works. You know? It just is amazing how he works. We can't see what he's doing right now in our lives, but he's at work. He's got a plan. We just can't see it all the time. Trust him. And so, at the close of the intertestinal period, this is ending, the stage is set. The language is in place for the gospel to spread. The roads are in place. The geography is perfect. You've got three continents meeting. The Roman government is in control of Israel. The people are weary of the oppression and are looking for their Messiah. They're looking for a political savior. And the characters are in place. The main character, Jesus, the Son of God was born in a town called Bethlehem, and he grew up in Nazareth. We have religious factions. We have the Pharisees who are on the scene. The Pharisees, they're blue-collar. They're called the separated ones, kind of Amish in a way, you know, or, or someone who'd be more separated. Well, they're not going to, they're, they're kind of, you know, they've got their own standards, and they don't want to admit they're, they're, they're separated, kind of holy in their own way. They believed in the oral traditions of the Talmud, not only the Ten Commandments, but everything in addition to. They were strict keepers of the law. They believed in an afterlife. They believed in a Messiah who would bring world peace. Boy, aren't we looking for that today. And then there were the Sadducees. They were elitists. They weren't blue collar. They wanted to continue the traditions of the priesthood. They did not believe in the afterlife. And that is why they were sad, you see. Had to get that in there. Approved of Hellenism. Approved of Hellenism. Approved of the mixture of Greek culture with Jewish culture. Whereas the Pharisees were like, eh, eh, no, unclean. If you are not Jewish, you're unclean. They rejected the oral traditions and wanted a strict interpretation of the law, the Ten Commandments. And that's important because when we get in Jesus, they start turning against one another. We'll see that as we go through Mark. And one of them will ask something because they know that the other one will be upset with it and then. They want this, and Jesus turns them all, or turns it back on them all, and they all get upset. We'll get there. The main focus in their life was the rituals associated with the temple. Another group, we're almost done, the Essenes. They were the Dead Sea sect. They were sick of both of those sides. They were located in the Judean wilderness. Uh, while I was in Israel, um, I was told by my tour guide, who was very knowledgeable, was amazing, um, he, he said uh, it's, a, it's believed in that John the Baptist might have been of the Essene sect out there studying the scriptures out in the desert. I said, no, I can't be. He was a Baptist. But anyway. Uh, there were Jewish nationalists. There were zealots. There were Romans. You had the poor. You had the rich. You had the sick. And then last but not least, you have us. Looking on it 2,000 years later. What are you going to teach us, God? What are you going to show us? All these things, and you can see it. We've got our Pharisees. We've got all our zealots. We've got our Sadducees. And we've got our poor and our rich. And we've got all these circumstances compacted into this room. Lord Jesus, will you please teach us? 
Will you please open our hearts to your word? Your king, King David, said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Father, we want to be your kids. We want to reflect you. Like Adam was supposed to reflect you. But didn't. But Jesus, the second Adam, did. We want to walk as Jesus walked. Will you create in us the desire to do that? Will you teach us as we enter into this book of Mark? Thank you that you've been faithful to bring us your scriptures. We're your children and we're hungry, Lord. You feed our souls. And will you just do amazing things in our sight, in our lives, in our attitudes, and also in our family. Oh, we need you, Father. We need you in our families, Lord. We need you in this valley. We need you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Amen.